Let's pray together, please. Father, we ask that you would indeed add your blessing to the reading and teaching of your word this day. We ask that you would speak through your word. We ask that you would comfort and convict, that you would encourage, that you would challenge us, that you would, in all things, show us your glory. And uh, Lord, we are sinners in need of grace. We thank you for the grace you have given. We ask you that that grace would continue in our lives, that we might magnify you. And we thank you for the confidence that we have in Christ, that you don't lose any that you rescue. Open us, uh, open our hearts to your word. And help us, Lord, not to, um, help us not to assume that we know everything already so that we don't have to listen to a message that details your gospel. Give us hearts to see fresh. We ask it in Christ's holy name. Amen. In our study of Paul's letter to the, to the Colossians here, we've finally come to the first clear unpacking of the gospel. Paul has already greeted the church at the beginning of this letter, and he's talked about how the message of Jesus is going out all over the world. And he told the Colossians how grateful he was for them, and how he prays for them, and how he prays for their growth. And part of that prayer that Paul prayed for the Colossians was that they would be grateful for the saving work of Jesus. We just heard Jason read that for us. And last week, we saw specifically, uh, through a beautiful song written in the first century, the absolute supremacy of Jesus, God the Son, God in flesh. And at the end of that song, Paul showed us that it's through the blood that Jesus shed on his cross that all things will eventually be reconciled to God, that everything ends up in its proper place. Now, that does not say at all that every human being is going to be rescued by God. We know that's not true. But it does say that whether by judgment or by grace, Everything in the universe, everything in the universe ends up set right by God in the right place because of the person and work of Jesus. So today's passage takes us from those big, distant concepts of reconciling the universe right down into ones that are very personal. It is in these verses that God shows us not only that Jesus reconciles the whole universe to God, but exactly how we as individuals are or could be reconciled to God. This passage is going to remind us of our story. And there's no person alive who could not find his or her standing before God somewhere in these verses that we're going to study this morning. So here's what I urge you this morning. Come with me into this text. Open your heart to gratitude Open your heart to the gospel. Open your heart to see and to savor the story of our reconciliation, if I can sound like a John Piper quote there. And if you are a note taker, which pretty much means if you're Kelly, uh, you are welcome to take down uh, notes from our outline. There will be five basic sermon points for this morning. Point number one. Remember who you were. Remember who you were. This may sound like a sermon point you've heard before, by the way. 
Look at verse 21 of Colossians chapter 1. It begins by saying, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Let me say to you at the very beginning something that we need to know as we think about the gospel. The gospel begins with God. No presentation of the gospel is complete if it doesn't start out for you with the greatness and the perfection and the holiness of God. And it might seem to you that where we're starting, it doesn't start that way. But notice that the verse begins with the word and. These verses are not set off to themselves. They're part of a big flowing thought. And we have to understand that we have, from the beginning of this letter, been magnifying the character of God. Paul knows that the people in Colossae know that they have been created by God. Paul knows that God is holy. Paul knows that they know and understand things that many modern people in our world do not grasp. So let me just take a second to remind us of some of the truths that the Bible declares to us to be so about God. First thing, and again, this is just preparatory. God is holy. That means God is perfect. He is absolutely above us and beyond us. And because God is holy, God is the very standard of what is right. He is perfectly righteous. And God is the creator. He made us. And that means that God has the right of ownership over everything that exists. There's not a single thing, there's not a single person in the universe God doesn't have the right to tell what to do. Because He made it out of His own stuff. And if you make something out of your own stuff, you pretty much get to do with it what you want, right? I often ask people, if you take a piece of paper and you draw a picture on it, what can you do with it? Well, you can hang it up on the fridge, you can color it in, you can throw it away. You can do anything you want with it if it's yours. God made us. He's the creator. And he has the right to do with us or to tell us anything he jolly well pleases. But God is also loving, thankfully. He is kind. God shows kindness to the whole world. God even shows tremendous kindness to those who are in rebellion against him and who will never repent. God has shown incredible mercy. Think of how kind God has been to you. God did not kill you the moment your first sin. That's kind. How old would you have made it, by the way? Let's not ask that question. But in the end, here's what we also know about God. In the end, God will not allow that which opposes Him to stand. God is just. He will always and perfectly judge what opposes Him. That is God. And the reason we have to say this is because we live in a world that doesn't know this stuff anymore. In the 1950s and 60s, if you wanted to present the gospel, you might be able to start with the Four Spiritual Laws tract that says God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And you could assume that the people you were talking to knew that when you were talking about God, you meant a holy God who judges sin. But that's not what the world believes anymore. So we need to know these things. The verses that just preceded our passage for today that Jason read for us, in those verses we see that Jesus Christ is God in flesh. 
He is our perfect picture of the person of God on earth. Jesus is all all these good things we just said about God. And Jesus is the only way that the universe can ever be set into a right relationship with God. In contrast, here in verse 21, we see ourselves, we see our story. And can I say to you that our story is not nice? Paul says about the Colossians and God says about us all that we once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. And in that little clause, we see three ways in which we started off rebels against God who were destined to be judged by God. First word here, it says we were alienated. And that draws for us a picture of being separated from the kingdom of God. When you hear that word, think of it describing you before you came to know Jesus as having a citizenship in the kingdom of God's enemies. You know, in our modern understanding of the world, the idea of a person being labeled as part of an enemy nation is not something that feels very familiar. But just go back in time a little bit, right? I mean, if you were an Israelite during the 8th century B.C., an Assyrian, and by that I mean any Assyrian, no matter who they are, they are your enemy. Unless they came to your nation and they asked you to become part of your people. Otherwise, Assyrians, all bad. That's the way that they thought. Or, if that seems too far back in time for you, Think about what you know about how people in the United States felt toward the Axis powers during World War II. During those days, fair or not, I'm not saying it's fair. During those days, Americans believed that anybody who came from the nations of Japan or Germany or those allied with them, they were our enemies. You couldn't be born into one of those nations and be naturally our ally at the same time. It just didn't work. You were part of the enemy nation and we were at war with you. That's the way we thought in the 1930s and 40s. Now, while those illustrations fail us if we take them too far, they help us to see something about our initial position before God. When human beings are born, we are born into the nation of enemies of God. We're not born neutral. If you believe that you're born neutral, please remove that from your theology. It's not true. We are born into the race, into the nation of Adam. We are born under Adam's guilt for attempting to throw off the rule of God and to make his own standards. And as children of Adam, we're citizens of the kingdom of darkness. We're not citizens of God's kingdom. And you might say, man, that's not fair. Doesn't sound very fair, does it? Be honest. We didn't have any choice over how we were born, and we didn't influence Adam's decision to sin against God. And y'all, that's true. It's not fair. But our birth into the kingdom of darkness fits our character and our choices, too. You see, every one of us in this room would have done just as poorly as Adam, who represents us. So the next thing Paul says about us is not only about our position, but again about our character, about our mind. He says we were hostile in mind. We, none of us, none of us are the little poor innocent victims of Adam's foolishness. 
No. The Bible says every last one of us has been hostile in mind toward God. That indicates hearts and minds that are set against, that are hateful toward God. In our thinking, we are guilty of fighting against God. And just think back over your life for a second, no matter what state you find yourself in. Don't you know this is true of you? Haven't there been moments, maybe even decades, in which your mind opposed the things of God? Is that not true of you? Haven't there been times in which you desired, even if you didn't follow through on those desires, you desired to do the things that God forbids? There have been moments when you knew that the way you were thinking, that the way you were feeling, that the standards you had were wrong. You knew it, and at that moment, you didn't care. That is true of all of us. There have been moments when all of us have believed false things about God and have believed false things about God's ways. That is true of us. So it's not just Adam who did it to us. You see, this is who we are. And third, Paul says, not only were you alienated, separated from God, not only were you hostile in your mind toward God, you were doing evil deeds. Not one of us can pretend that we've never taken an action that God opposes. Not one of us. All of us have sinned before God. All of us, at one time or another, have looked at an action, known it wasn't best, known it wasn't right, and chosen to do it anyway. And so the whole point of this first verse is to remind us that every single one of us has stood guilty before God. We were born into the nation of God's enemies, no matter what country in the world we came from. We've all been hostile in mind toward God, and we've all followed that hostility with genuine acts of rebellion and disobedience to God. You know... This passage that we're reading today really parallels in so many ways Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And at the beginning of that passage in Ephesians, Paul tells you your story this way. He says in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You've got to admit, this is an ugly, discouraging picture of us. So why spend so much time hammering away at it? Listen, are you with me? We have to remember who we were if we're ever going to love the gospel. If we're going to love being reconciled to God, if we're going to love the Savior who saved us, we have to realize from what we were rescued. We've earned the wrath and the judgment of God. We've earned it by being born into Adam's race, by by thinking against God, and by our actions taken against God. And we should, by all rights, be eternally punished by God for attacking His holy rule. And if God gives us anything less than eternal and infinite wrath, that is grace that is beyond anything we could ever imagine. 
Christians, remember who you were so that you can properly give God thanks for the gospel. Second point. Be amazed by the sacrifice of Christ. Be amazed by the sacrifice of Christ. Look at verse 22 at the beginning. Talking about you, Christians. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. So here we go. The concept of our reconciliation becomes beautiful. We were opposed to God in our birth, in our thoughts, and in our actions, but God has reconciled us to himself if we've come under the grace of God. If we've come under his grace, the only way to have done that is by the person and work of Jesus Christ. And here the earlier verses talk to us about Jesus, right? The earlier verses, 15 to 20, talk to us about Jesus' supremacy. It showed us that Jesus is God, the Son. He came to earth. He put on flesh to reconcile the universe. And now we see that it is specifically through two things. Jesus' incarnation, which means Him becoming human, and through His death, that any of us is ever reconciled to God. If those things don't happen, we're not reconciled. Now notice the phrase here at the beginning of the verse. He, he reconciled you through his body of flesh. Right? That is a real specific way for Paul to say that Jesus put on a human body and lived as a man. And there's two reasons why Paul calling Jesus, saying that Jesus had a body of flesh that's really important. One thing is... Real simple, Jesus taking on flesh is how Jesus enters that race of Adam. Jesus taking on flesh is the way that Jesus gets into the hostile enemy nation so he can bring us out of it. The only way that God could rescue people who were sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, to be all C.S. Lewis-y, is for Jesus to come and put on the body of a son of Adam. Had Jesus not identified with us as humans, he could never have taken our place and been our perfect sacrificial substitute. But one of the things interesting about that body of flesh phrasing, you guys know God inspired the Bible. God told Paul in God's own special way, inspired Paul to write exactly what God wanted written. Well, God knew not only what was happening in Colossae at that time, but he knew the really crazy-headed mistakes that we would make in the future. And Paul covers that right here with that phrase, body of flesh. See, Paul knew, and certainly God knew as he inspired Paul, that there were going to be people either present in Colossae or coming soon who would not be able to stomach the idea of Jesus being God in the flesh. And, and there might have been some people like that living in Colossae. There were going to be people who tried to argue that Jesus could not both be God and man. They would argue that Jesus could look like a human. He looked like he had a body. He tricked us into thinking so, but really he was just pretending because he was really God and put on a shadow of humanity, but he never really became man. That became a heresy that had to be addressed at the Council at Nicaea in 325. God, when he inspires Paul to write this letter this way, he makes it clear that no, 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 no. Jesus is God and man. 
Verses 15 through 20 emphasize the godness of Jesus. Now we see that absolutely for sure, Jesus is really, truly, perfectly human too. Because he has a body of flesh. Not a spirit body, not a shadow body, not an image body. He took on real human flesh. It's so cool how God does this. He shows us that Jesus has a dual nature. Scripture shows it here, and it's beautiful. Now, that's important just for some theology. Because you're going to have people that would say God would never let his real son suffer. He sure did. All right, we'll move on from that. Also see in this verse, in this little clause of verse 22, God accomplished our reconciliation through the death of Christ. Jesus did more than just be human to rescue us. He also died to pay the price that we deserve to pay for our sins. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice of God on our behalf. He took the blame that we deserve so we might be forgiven. And those are huge truths that we're seeing here. And if we, if we're going to be reconciled to God, our only we're only reconciled through the perfect work done by Jesus. Jesus is God the Son. He took on flesh. He sacrificed His life on the cross to pay the penalty for people who were alienated and hostile in mind and doing evil deeds. I don't have time to read it to you, but doesn't that make you think of Philippians 2, 5-8? Jesus took on flesh, humbled Himself, not only just to obedience, but to death on a cross. It's right there. Again. But here's the other beautiful thing. Here's the good news. The sacrifice of Jesus worked. Aren't you glad it worked? It was enough. Every single person throughout all of history who comes to Jesus Christ in faith, turning from sin, is fully and completely forgiven and reconciled to God. How do we know? We have proof of it because Jesus rose from the dead. So Christians, when you hear these kind of big truths, please, please hear. Don't just nod your head and go, yeah, I know that all. And that's a temptation, especially for churches that have been taught well. Isn't it a temptation to feel like you know this stuff already? But don't do that. Allow yourself the time, allow yourself the emotion this morning to be astonished. You were God's enemy. You hated God and his ways. And God sent his son to earth in flesh and let him suffer the penalty that you earned. And he did it so that he could rescue you and bring you into right relationship with him, the one you had hated. This is stunning. It's glorious. Be amazed. Please, Christians, for the love of God, be amazed at the sacrifice of Jesus. Third point. Celebrate what Christ accomplished. Verse 22, the last half. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Why did God do this work through Christ? We see with this little in order that. 
We get a reason why Jesus did what he did. He came to earth. He took on flesh. He died to pay for your sins in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. See, the sacrifice of Jesus works in an amazing way. It didn't just make you savable, nor did it merely take just the punishment that you deserve away. No, no, no. The work of Jesus counters your threefold rebellion against God with a beautiful threefold perfection. You had been alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. But if you come to Jesus for mercy, God sees you as holy, blameless, and above reproach. Look at those beautiful, beautiful words. Holy. It means that you're set apart. It means that you're sacred. It means that you're special like God. Blameless reminds you of the spotless perfection of an acceptable Old Testament sacrifice. That perfect, pure, sacrificial lamb. That was blameless. Above reproach tells us that in Christ, there is now no longer any accusation that anybody may successfully level against you before God. And those three words weave together to form a beautiful picture of the perfection of Christ that you are given upon your salvation. Just imagine, Christians, what we get to say. Because of Jesus, God sees us as holy. You're not common anymore. You're not tainted. You're not somebody God sees as living in the enemy kingdom anymore. He sees you as his own. The Bible says, Christians, if you're in Christ, you're blameless. God does not see you as guilty anymore. You are, if you're in Christ, above reproach. God says that nobody, nobody at all is allowed to bring up an accusation against you before him. God refuses to see those who have come to Christ as anything but absolutely made perfect because the perfection of Jesus has been credited into our account. Can you live with that being said about you? Can you believe it? Because it's bigger and it's better than you could ever imagine. You know in your day-to-day life you're not perfect. You know you still fail. You know you still sin. But God says of His children, God says of those in Christ... They are holy, blameless, and above reproach. And Christians, this should cause in your heart incredible joy. This should lead you to worship. It should lead you to gratitude. It should lead you to celebrate what Jesus accomplished. And before we look at the last verse, there is likely in some of your minds a nagging complaint. That grace we just talked about, that's too gracious. 
it's too big. It, if we say this stuff, there are going to be people who take advantage of it and use it as an excuse to continue in sin. First, let me remind you that those complaints are the accusations that were leveled against Paul by Paul's opponents. Thus, and this is not original to me, if the gospel you preach to others does not cause some people to make you think... Or, hold on, I can't say it right. I'm going to have to learn to talk. It's a good thing I don't talk for a living. If the gospel that you preach to others does not cause others, some others, to think that you're making grace too easy, you're probably not preaching the same gospel as Paul. Grace is bigger and better than we think. And yes, I know, we talked about cheap grace in Sunday school this morning, so I get it. I get it. But if when you present the gospel to the world, if there's nobody who thinks you're making it too easy, you're probably not doing what Paul did. But let me also say this. There is nowhere in Scripture that anybody ever argues that grace doesn't change you. A person under grace will live differently, not to earn grace, but because of grace. And we'll see that in point number four. So look here, get ready. We'll look at point number four. Continue in the original faith. Verse 23, first part. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So here we see a condition applied to the discussion of our salvation. Everything about our reconciliation is true of us if something else is true. We can know we're genuinely reconciled to God if we continue in the faith. So first... Let me say this to you because I want to make sure that we don't make a theological error. This is not saying that the Colossians or anybody else could lose their salvation. Paul is not arguing that they will stay saved so long as they stay in the faith, but if they leave the faith, they step out of salvation. How do we know that? We know that in all the other places Paul writes, Paul is clear that you cannot lose salvation. We know this because if we biblically understand how we're saved, we see that the ultimate sovereignty over our salvation is in God's hands, not ours. If God saved me, I can't lose me. And we know that Paul is not at all hinting at the loss of salvation, simply because if you actually do study the Greek language behind this, you find out that the construction of this sentence is a condition that Paul assumes is met. It's almost like me saying, if the sun comes up today, we'll go do this. We know it's happening, right? Paul assumes it. It's a sure thing. It's not just a possibility. Paul says they're going to remain in the faith and he knows it. And that's why he knows all this other stuff's true of them. So what is this about? A couple things we need to keep in view. One, the truth is remaining and not departing from the faith is evidence of genuine faith. You ever wonder, how can I tell if I'm really saved? 
I bet every Christian's wrestled with that at some point or another. How do I have assurance that I'm saved? According to this passage, you can tell if you're saved if you continue to trust in Jesus and Jesus alone for your salvation. Don't, please, measure your salvation by looking back at one event in your childhood and saying, well, I know because of that day I'm saved. I'm not doubting whatever that day was for you, but please don't let what you think you did 20, 30, 50 years ago be the key way that you judge whether or not you're in Christ. Look instead at your heart right now. Are you continuing in the faith right now? Because if so, you have hope that you're genuinely saved. Are you growing in righteous living? Are you repenting of sin? Does it hurt your heart when you do wrong and does it give you joy when you honor God? That's evidence of salvation. Are you still realizing that Jesus and Jesus alone is your only hope? That's evidence of your salvation. John shows us the opposite side of this truth in 1 John 2.19 when he writes this. He says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. What? John said, look, if somebody who says I'm part of the church, I love Jesus, can then walk away, deny the faith and not come back, they show you they were never part of the faith. John did not say that they lost salvation. John said that departing proves that you weren't actually in Christ. By the way, the doctrinal term for this is the perseverance or the preservation of the saints. Those who are genuinely in Christ will remain in the faith. Those who are genuinely in Christ will be kept in Christ by the power of God. Now, one more point in this verse, in this part. Paul says, look, remain in the original faith, right? Because he says to the Colossians, cling to the gospel as it was originally presented. The gospel you heard. Why does Paul say it that way? Because there are some false teachers in Colossae and they want to cause people to change the way that they understand the work of Christ. They they, they, they want to add secret knowledge and rituals and rules to the requirements of salvation. And Paul wants right here at the beginning to indicate that nobody ought to be changing any little part of the true gospel. Think about how harshly Paul spoke to the Galatian church when people there were changing the message of the gospel. Galatians 1, 69, here's what Paul writes. Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. See, to the Galatians, Paul said, if anybody tries to change the genuine message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, they should be accursed. 
Paul says gospel changers are anathema. You know what he's saying? As harsh as it sounds, Paul says, look, if somebody's changing the gospel, let them die and go to hell forever. That is Paul using as strong a language as he possibly can that we don't mess with the true gospel of Jesus Christ. So what do we do with this message? Well, continue in the original faith. Christians, stand strong. Press on. Don't get discouraged. Don't walk away. Don't compromise your life. Don't let go of the gospel. And continue in the original faith by knowing, loving, and protecting biblical doctrine. Please don't be a person that says, oh, I don't think about that doctrine stuff. That just makes you fair game for foolishness. Don't accept compromise. If anybody says salvation is Jesus plus something else, they're wrong. And by the way, can I have a pet peeve moment with you? I I get to. I'm the pastor. It's my job. There's a lot of stuff that if we're not careful, we will put into that Jesus hand. Now, we'd never say it saves people, but we assume all saved people do things our way. You ever notice that? What are the things good Christians do? If you're not careful, you're going to think of those things as part of the marks of salvation. And then you're going to look down on other Christians who don't do them the same way you do. I've heard Christian leaders give like 30-minute rants on why anybody who does their quiet time in the evening rather than in the morning is in sin. By the way, the Bible never tells you to have a quiet time. I'm not telling you you shouldn't. Put the rocks down. But think about it. How many times a day does the Bible tell you to read the Bible? It doesn't actually tell you. How many times a day did Christians before the 1500s read the Bible? Most of them didn't because it didn't happen in their houses. Either we have 1,500 years of bad Christians or maybe now that we have Bibles we should thank God and use them and love them and know them and know God's word but maybe we shouldn't judge people if they choose to read it in the evening rather than in the morning. Maybe we shouldn't judge people that listen to it on audio instead of reading it off of paper. Okay, I've got a huge rant on this. I'm going to stop now but you get it, right? (laughs) Talk to me later. I've got a lot more of these. If anybody says that there's some ritual you have to go through in order to be saved, they're wrong. That includes baptism, which God commands. Christ commands that those who trust in him be immersed in water as a testimony of their salvation. But you know what? That doesn't save you. If anybody says that there's another way to be reconciled to God other than through the person and work of Christ, they're wrong. If anybody denies the virgin birth of Christ, the perfect life of Christ, the sacrificial death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, or the future return of Christ, they are wrong. And if anybody tells you that there's a way to be saved other than by turning from sin and by trusting in Christ, they're wrong. And Christians, you've got to know your doctrine and you've got to continue in the original faith. 
And here's some people would argue that if we focus too much on doctrine, we are going to be an inwardly focused church that has no impact on the world. You people just love doctrine. You, you know, that's worthless if all you do is love doctrine. Paul addresses that too. Point number five, take part in the spread of the gospel. This is so cool. Look at verse 23 again. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Back up in verse 6 of chapter 1, Paul makes mention of the fact that the gospel is bearing fruit and growing in the whole world. And here he comes back to that thought as he talks to the Colossians about the gospel's proclamation in the whole world. Paul says he's a minister, he's a servant of the gospel, and he's taking part in the spread of the gospel. And and we're not going to spend a ton of time on that because this is actually sort of an open door to the next passages in Colossians where Paul talks about his ministry and about his love for the church. But we are going to highlight as we wrap up the simple truth that Paul knew he was a man on mission to take the message of Jesus to the lives of others. And the Colossians... And we who read this letter today should make it a priority in our lives to join Paul and to join all the other saints who went before us in history and join in the spreading of the gospel. I want you to listen. In fact, go ahead and flip in your Bible to, uh, to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to wrap up, but I want you to see this passage. Give such a great summary of this passage in so many ways. 2 Corinthians 5.17 listen, listen to how familiar this feels now. Are you there? 17 says, Therefore, if, any, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Doesn't that sound like holy, blameless, above reproach kind of stuff? All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. God entrusted to you and to me the message of reconciliation. What do we do with that? Paul says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And look at this. Maybe my favorite summary of the gospel. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Holy, blameless, above reproach. Do you see? Paul highlights that those who are in Christ have been reconciled to God, but those who are reconciled to God are also ministers of reconciliation. We call out to others and ask them, please be reconciled to God too. You see, God made us new. God transferred us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of His Son. And now we join Him in inviting all the world out there to come and join us too. 
So Christians, here's the call. Protect the gospel, believe in the gospel, remain in the gospel, love your doctrine, and please find a way to invite others into the family of God. Find a way to invite others to be reconciled to God. Because there is no human being on this earth who should not hear God's offer of salvation in Christ. I don't care where they are, I don't care who they are, and I don't care what they've done. If they live and breathe today, they need to hear somebody tell them that if they will turn from their sins and turn to Christ, they will be rescued by God. We don't know who is elect. We don't know who God's going to save. And truthfully, that is absolutely none of our business. We are called to tell the truth about Jesus. We tell everybody we can that if they'll turn from their sins and trust in Jesus, they'll be reconciled to God. We join in this beautiful work of God as ministers of the gospel. And when we do, we find joy because it will remind us, as we started, of our own reconciliation. So, what have we done? We've called each other, Christians, to remember who we were to be amazed by the sacrifice of Jesus, to celebrate what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf, to continue in the original faith and to take part in the spread of the gospel. But it sure is possible that somebody's here this morning who you're not yet reconciled to God through Christ. I know that's possible. And if you're here this morning and that's your position, can I offer you hope? The same forgiveness and salvation that I've been talking about for a long time up here, the same forgiveness we're celebrating today is available for you. But you don't just get it automatically. It doesn't just fall on you. God commands us all to realize that we're sinners and that we are in danger of being judged by God. He calls us to renounce that sin, to turn away from that sin. He calls us to decide, I would rather follow God and let God be in charge than me be in charge. And then most of all, he commands us all, if we want to be rescued, to believe in Jesus and what he's done and to turn to Jesus to ask for mercy. And if you'll turn away from your sin and place your total trust for your souls forever in who Jesus is and what Jesus did... You will be forgiven. You will be reconciled to God. And so, as a minister of the gospel, I urge us all, be reconciled to God. God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray together. God, you're good. And we really, really need your mercy. We need your help. We need you to give us grace. We need you to help us to celebrate that you've reconciled us to yourself. And we need you to help us worship you rightly. And we need you to help us to take the gospel to others. And we won't do any of it rightly on our own. So please, Lord, show us your glory and help us to be a part of this glorious message that you give us all. It's in Christ's holy name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. We're going to sing a song and help us reflect on these things as we continue in worship. And it may be that you're here and you need to talk to me or somebody else about this gospel.
please come find me when the service is over and we'll be happy to help you uh, take the next steps. And whatever it is, whether it's to obey Christ through baptism or joining our church or to come and ask Jesus to rescue your soul. Let's sing together now.